This is Africa Digest. You can find us on 9625 kHz, that's on the 31-meter band if you're in Southern Africa. This hour, I'm with Ona Lenzinti, Wissani Matibula, and Mosibuli Makura. The top stories. U.S. Secretary of State to begin his whirlwind African tour. South Africa authorities and retailers battle to contain the fallout following the tracing of the source of listeriosis outbreak. In economics, the trial of oil giants over corruption in Nigeria, which was due to begin today, has been postponed until May 14. And in sport, disappointing start for the Proteas as they lose the first test match against Australia. Thank you, Spoo. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson will travel to Africa this week in a whirlwind week-long tour covering four countries. During his visit, Tillerson will hold meetings with heads of state of Chad, Kenya, Ethiopia, Djibouti and Nigeria. While in Ethiopia, the top U.S. diplomats will meet the leadership of the African Union. Expectations are high, as Sarah Kimani explains. Rex Tillerson's trip to Africa, the first since the election of Donald Trump just over a year ago, will lay out the U.S. policy for Africa. A statement from the State Department says he will discuss, among other things, counterterrorism, peace and security, good governance, as well as trade and investment. All the nations he will visit on the front line as America's partners in the fight against terrorism. Amnesty International is, however, worried that counterterrorism efforts in all these countries have sometimes been used to commit human rights abuses, a matter they want the top U.S. diplomat to address. Over 500 senior doctors at Kenya's biggest referral hospital, Kenyatta National Hospital, have reportedly downed their tools in protest against the suspension of their colleague who performed a brain surgery on the wrong patient. Reports last week said that the neurosurgeon was suspended after performing a brain surgery on the wrong patient. Doctors only realized the mistake hours into the surgery when they discovered there was no blood clot in the brain, according to news reports. The doctor's colleague had protested the suspension, saying that the nurses who prepared the patients for surgery were the ones at fault for wrongly labeling the two patients. The sole candidate running against Egypt's President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in this month's national election have, has attempted to organize a rally, but no one showed up. About a dozen workers from the campaign of Musa Mustafa Musa carried protests, posters of him about 100 meters in downtown Cairo on Sunday, stopping a well shot of the end of the planned march. At least twice as many photographers and cameramen were 
from state and private media documented the match. RCC is certain to win re-election in the March 26th to the 28th vote after a string of would-be contenders withdrew under pressure or were arrested. South Korea says the North Korean leader Jim Jong-un is meeting a peace delegation from the South, marking a rare diplomatic engagement for the reclusive um, leader. The South's national security advisor, Shung Yong Yong, is one of the five senior officials who flew to Pyongyang. It's the first materialistic level South Korean visit to the North since December 2007, when Seoul's then-intelligence chief traveled to Pyongyang. The BBC's Laura Bikers reports. Kim Jong-un has invited the South Korean ministers to a banquet. It will make the officials from Seoul the first from South Korea to meet the reclusive young leader. He rarely meets with any foreign officials. President Moon has sent his spy chief and his top national security advisor to Pyongyang with a letter. The aim is to try to convince the regime to talk about denuclearization. The United States has said it will only meet with North Korea when it appears willing to discuss getting rid of its nuclear weapons. North Korean state media said at the weekend that it would not accept any preconditions. And lastly, South Africa's packaged goods company Tiger Brand says it hasn't yet established a direct link between its products and the deaths of 180 people following the listeriosis outbreak. On Sunday, Health Minister Aaron Montualedi announced that Enterprise Foods and Rainbow Chicken's products, such as Poloni, Russian, Chicken Sausage and Vienna's, were the source of listeriosis. Briefing the media in Johannesburg, Tiger Brand CEO Lawrence Mc. Google says the company has increased its testing process. Our products have continually tested below the 10 CFUs and therefore not all products that have detection are harmful to consumers. So that is why we've acted as we have. Since the Department of Health, the DTI and the NCC have raised the awareness, we have taken the precautions to start detecting zero to watch for zero detection of listeriosis in our product. Therefore, the testing regimes have been upweighted significantly. There's been no direct correlation between our products and the deaths yet, so we are unaware of any direct link. Channel African News, I'm Onilinsinsi. Seventeen oh six Central African time right here on Africa Digest. Thank you very much, Onele. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson will travel to Africa this week in a whirlwind week-long tour covering four countries, according to the State Department. During his visit, Tillerson will hold meetings with the heads of states of Chad, Kenya, Ethiopia, Djibouti, and Nigeria. While in Ethiopia, the U.S. diplomat will meet the leadership of the African Union. Expectations are high, as Sarah Kimani found out in the following report. Rex Tillerson's trip to Africa, the first since the election of Donald Trump just over a year ago, will lay out the U.S. policy for Africa. A statement from the State Department says he will discuss, among other things, counterterrorism, peace and security, good governance, as well as trade and investment. All the nations he will visit are on the front line as America's partners in the fight against terrorism. Amnesty International is, however, worried that counter-terrorism efforts in all these countries have sometimes been used to commit human rights abuses, a matter they want the top U.S. diplomat to address. 
Fiseha Tekle is a researcher at Amnesty International. But at the same time, when countering terrorism, human rights standards must be respected. Terrorism does not uh, 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 give uh, a free way to uh, <coughs> violate human rights. Any response to human rights, uh, to terrorism, should respect the human rights obligations of the countries. Tillerson will emphasize on the need for inclusive governments in Ethiopia and Kenya, both of which have recently been rocked by political upheavals. So we hope that the U.S. will emphasize the importance of having stable democracy, having stable countries that respect human rights to those countries. He will also seek to reaffirm U.S.-Africa ties, weeks after President Trump referred to Africa and Haiti in a derogatory manner. The report is by Sarah Kimani. The Democratic Republic of Congo's National Police has warned that journalists have to stop covering demonstrations since they are prohibited in that country, otherwise they'll be dealt with as protesters. The police statement has been described as unacceptable by both the country's journalists and media law experts who believe people have the full right to access information on what's happening around them. Jean-Noël Bamwenzi reports from Kinshasa. The Democratic Republic of Congo is currently facing a serious political crisis and the Catholic Church is busy taking to the streets to demand the implementation of the December 2016 agreement. At least 17 people have been killed during the three protests on December 31st, January 21st and February 25th as the national police used both tear gas and drill bullets to disperse protesters since demonstrations are now prohibited in this country. At a workshop on journalist safety during crisis periods, the National Police spokesperson Colonel Pierre Mwanaputu warned journalists have to stop covering such demonstrations, otherwise they'll be dealt with as protesters. When we disperse, we disperse everybody and if we need to arrest, it's done for everybody and you'll be dealt with as a protester before we can know that you're Regionalists. This is why it's better for you, as you know that it's prohibited the protest to just stay away. And according to this expert of media law who has presented on some journalist behavior that are offenses and dealt with as such by this country's law, journalists here in the DRC have to be self-protected first. Charles Mushizi, who is a lawyer and an expert from the Study Center for Justice Reform, believes that the Congolese National Police warning is just an intimidation and indeed Mushizi emphasizes that such a statement shouldn't be accepted in a democratic country. That is a speech which cannot be accepted in the democracy. It's clear that uh, Mr. Mwanamputu is taking part for the regime. He's not open for the press freedom in uh, the specific context of the DOC. Even if uh, the country is facing some crises, uh, the press should be uh, free to inform the public on uh, our society situation. This is uh, a clear manner of uh, intimidation 
and uh, a pressure put on journalists to not freely do their job to inform the public. Journalists here in the Democratic Republic of Congo have looked at the speech of the Congolese National Police spokesperson as a way of restoring press freedom and Congolese rights to access information. Rene Masiala believes the journalists here are not allowed to do correctly their job. Our government uh, hasn't authorized journalists in DRC to do correctly his job. Congolese journalist is not protected. The journalist must know to take care, to know uh, this place is good, there is not good. Where can I go take my news? The Democratic Republic of Congo's constitution allows both Congolese to demonstrate and media to cover correctly events. But in September 2016, authorities here decided to ban any protest after tens of people were killed during clashes between protesters and police. Some sources close to the Catholic Church have revealed that another protest might take place this month. The ruling majority has accused the church of being used by politicians here. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Thank you very much for staying with Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. It is info at channelafrica.co.za. Your time is 17.14 Central African time. Now, experts say South Africans are big borrowers and poor savers, and that reducing indebtedness and improving savings among them is a major socioeconomic challenge. The bad financial habits are said to be fueled by the current economic environment, rising living costs, as well as the lack of financial knowledge. Managing Director of Old Mutual's Mass and Foundation Cluster, Clarence Netengwe, explains. South Africans tend to be more consumption-led rather than people who, who save money. So the first thing they will think about is to buy the basic necessities of life. And immediately after that, then they will look at, you know, is there anything available from a retail, facial retail perspective, buying, you know, brands and all these other things. So they spend too much of their money on, 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 on these things. Rather than, you know, as a first thing that comes to mind is how much can I save for tomorrow? So that's the kind of, 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 of thinking that is sort of prevalent among South Africans. An argument that most consumers make now is that, you know, there isn't much to save anyway, and hence they don't save. Is this an argument that really holds water? 
No, no, it doesn't hold water because every person, uh, whatever their earning, you know, income is, needs to first of all think about what are the basic necessities. And once you have, you know, dealt with those, then you look at what is your disposable income after having taken care of the basic necessities. You will find that, you know, after you, you know, make a provision for, you know, children's education in the future, make provision for difficult days, they still do have some discretionary savings that is available. And it is only out of those discretionary savings that they could spoil themselves. But people tend to start with discretionary uh, money and use that to spoil themselves. And after having spoiled themselves, they realize that they don't have anything left at all. It is the mindset which is the problem. It is not the income that is the problem. When we look at the issue of debt, which I suppose goes hand in hand uh, with financial literacy, how financially literate would you say uh, South Africans are? You yourself can just go back to your school days. We were never taught anything around how to deal with money, how to handle money. So I believe that as South Africans, the big thing that we need to do is to invest in financial literacy, and that needs to happen within the school system. It should be part and parcel of the school curriculum, starting you know from foundation phase all the way to secondary phase and even university. So it needs to get more complex as it gets to different levels. But the most important thing is that from foundation phase, it needs to be part and parcel of, of, of the curriculum. If you don't do it like that, it's going to continue. Like, so if you look at a country like China, for example, which is used as a model of savings throughout the world, part and parcel of their drive for financial literacy is to include it as part and parcel of the formal education system. So I believe that should be an approach that South Africa should adopt, make it part and parcel of the formal education system. What role would you say the financial services sector has? Um, again, when we look at the issue of debt, what role does it have um, in as far as either addressing the issue or perhaps preventing uh, the, the, the high rate at which debt is in South Africa? So financial services organizations First of all, they need to establish a consumer education or financial education units within them. And these should be geared toward uh, educating South Africans and, and around how to you know, handle their money, how to manage their finances. That is the first thing. Secondly, they need to support consumers by ensuring that people don't overextend themselves because it is through engaging with Financial. So when you talk financial institutions, people tend to think of financial institutions as your banks and insurers. But you do have financial institutions when you engage with your clothing or retail institutions out there that provide things on credit, that provide uh, you know, micro-solutions such as you know, money lending and the like. So, you need to extend that to that you know to such players. You need to have, for example, uh, the big retailers like Edcast, Edcom, for example. They need to play a role in informing the I mean the, the consumer in making sure that the various uh, consumers who visit their retail stores do not overextend themselves.
Now, one of Vladimir Putin's first moves on coming to power in Russia 18 years ago was to bring influential TV channels under state control. Since then, the U.S. has accused Russia of taking that information war abroad with a factory of trolls paid to manipulate public opinion via social media and even the American vote. In the first of a series of reports ahead of Russia's presidential election, the BBC's Moscow correspondent Sarah Rainsford looks at how information has been turned into a weapon under Vladimir Putin. Deep in Siberia, Victor flicks on the light in a TV gallery full of expensive equipment gathering dust. For more than 20 years, he ran a popular independent television channel here until TV2 was taken off air. The channel annoyed everyone in power locally. The news team saw that as their job. But reigning in the free press was one of Vladimir Putin's first moves after his election 18 years ago. Far from Moscow, TV2 was one of the last survivors. It's obvious we were no threat here in Tomsk, but the authorities are constantly afraid. Afraid of revolution or losing control. They want to control everything, but that's impossible. And they don't trust anyone. Now Russia's information war has moved to the Internet. We took a train north to St. Petersburg, where the Kremlin's been accused of operating an army of internet trolls paid to push official propaganda on social media. The troll factory is an ordinary-looking office building in a snowy city suburb. It's mostly empty these days, with a Tarent sign on the front. But a criminal indictment in the United States claims that this was the heart of a Russian campaign to sow discord not just at home, but far away in America. Ludmilla worked at the troll factory for two months. The information she leaked from inside helped expose how the system worked. She showed me a blog of the fake character she helped to create. Ludmilla's job focused on opinion in Russia, but she believes the methods for English language trolls were the same. Staff operated in shifts, producing up to 80 social media posts every day. It's a huge machine. I see thousands of posts appearing under every news story, right before my eyes. If a troll spoke about America or Ukraine, it had to be negative. If it was Putin or Russia's military, it was positive. Bloggers got written instructions of what to present and the conclusions that people should draw. And it seems the trolls are still operating. We've been told that the troll factory has moved here to this premises. So I'm just going to see if any of these people in the uh, smoking shelter opposite actually work there and what they can tell me. The women have no idea what I'm talking about. But Inakenti tells me he's seen some of the online warriors here and he doesn't like what they do. We confirmed that one company named in the U.S. indictment is in the new office building. Later, I managed to speak to its general director by phone. Dmitry Gadeev wouldn't clarify what exactly his company does, so I asked him straight if they were trolling. He didn't confirm that, but he didn't deny it either. 
Instead, he said we could talk about it all one day in an interview, but I should call back, maybe in a month, he said. Back in Siberia, I met up with Victor and his journalist wife at their home. The Tea Time news only comes from state-controlled television now, since TV2 has been silenced. When there were street protests against closing the channel, Victoria tells me state television ignored them completely. Information is being controlled in Russia now, even weaponized. And with another six years of Vladimir Putin in power, all but guaranteed, this couple see no chance of that changing. It is 1724 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. Now, South Africa marks Human Rights Month this March. Young people are urged to take charge of their sexual reproductive health and rights. With gender-based violence, also a series of problems in the country, men are also encouraged to play a more active role in protecting women and girls. Lerado Marulane is with the She Conquers movement, which aims to improve the lives of adolescent girls and young women in South Africa. She maintains that it is critical for young people to be informed about policies that affect their lives so that they know and understand the choices that they have. Personally and the others that I've been working with, we just need to get information to the ground and relevant people because we have realized that certain information stays within the four walls. For instance, if policies are made, only the privileged and, you know, I would say mostly, most of the time they invite academics and forgetting civil society, forgetting those are suffering on the ground, you know, the ones who really need the information and don't know what's really happening, don't know what the policies entail, don't know their basic human right as, you know, your sexual right or your access to service. Now, gender-based violence is a big problem in South Africa today. What more do you think needs to be done to eliminate the scourge? In addition to people getting information which you spoke about, but can you think of other measures that need to be in place for gender-based violence to be a thing of the past, if possible? I think, you know, we need to stop putting women as the face of it and putting perpetrators as the face of it. Because, you know, when something happens and you focus mostly on the person who, yes, we need to focus on women and, you know, make sure that they're emotionally well after, you know, actions and what happened to them. However, we also need to go to the source, find out why did this person do it because we end up, we just take them and throw them to jail without understanding what happens psychologically. And I think this time it's about high time, yes, they are wrong, men are wrong, and all those kind of stuff, and they do that. We need to focus on the psychological aspect of it. What pushed, we're not saying we're asking for it as women, but mm. then also what pushed him and how was his upbringing, and, you know, all those small nitty-gritties, because that's where it all begins, and we end up not taking, you know, attention and, you know, realizing that, those small things when you tell your boy not to cry, those are the things, you know, those are enablers and we are not aware of it. So I think we need to focus more on the psychological aspect and, you know, finding, making sure that we find positive role models for young men, making sure that, you know, we find 
positive female role models also for men because you cannot just get positive male role models. There are certain boys who look up to their mothers who are raised by single mothers. So we could look into that. Just to add on that, so would you say at this point in time, men and boys are not involved enough in various programs to promote the development of vulnerable populations in society? Yes, they're not involved and some of them, those who are involved, it's either they just there to take the boxes and, you know, just make sure that men involvement is mm. there. And it's not really enough. We need people who are passionate enough. We need people who are there for the right cause, not to just, you know, get fame because this is not about fame it's about the lives of women of South Africa it's about the lives of women of Africa and the entire group and if we are just going to make this you know a one year thing and you know a man being there just to pick a box to say a man has been there then we're doing it wrong so we need real you know not radical or liberal as long as you are a man who believes in gender equity or equality whatever that you believe in and which is the right cause then that is what we need. So right now in the space, men are there, but their voices, it's not enough. We need them in their masses. We need to empower them. For those who are already, you know, perpetrators of abuse, we need, you know, some sort of assistance so that they can be rehabilitated and see things differently. That is Lerato Morulane of the She Conquers Movement, which aims to improve the lives of adolescent girls and young women in South Africa, on the line with Jane Robotata. Channel Africa has good news for you. We have extended our reach. If you have an iPad or iPhone, download the Channel Africa iOS app at itunes.apple.com If you have a cell phone, then get our Android app at Google Store. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It is now time for your news headlines. Here's on Ellen Sinti. Over 500 senior doctors at Kenya's biggest referral hospital, Kenyatta National Hospital, down tools in protest against the suspension of their colleague who performed a brain surgery on the wrong patient. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson will travel to Africa this week in a whirlwind week-long tour covering four countries. And South Africa's packaged goods company, Tiger Brand, says it hasn't yet established a direct link between its products and the deaths of 180 people following the listeriosis outbreak. Channel Africa News, I am Onelin Sinsi. Thank you very much, Onele. It is 17.31 Central African time. It's info at channelafrica.co.za if you want to send us emails. Now, several retail stores in South Africa have started recalling all products singled out as possible culprits in the listeriosis outbreak that has engulfed the country. Health Minister Dr. Aaron Mutualedi announced this past weekend that the enterprise factory in the country's Limpopo province has been found to be the source of the outbreak of the disease. 
The company's facility in Germiston, east of Johannesburg, as well as the rainbow chicken production in Sesselberg in the Free State Province have also been implicated after the disease was detected in the processed foods such as cold meats. The foodborne disease has so far claimed the lives of at least 180 people and infected just under a thousand others. Mutsoledi elaborates. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Firstly, let me start here maybe for you to understand. Listeria is not a notifiable disease in South Africa because for a disease to be notifiable in terms of our health or also in terms of the international health regulation, for a disease to be notifiable, it must satisfy at least two or five qualifying criteria. For 40 years, Listeria never had satisfied any of those five. Number one, it must be contagious. In other words, it must be a communicable disease moving from one person to the other. You know by now that listeria is a foodborne disease. It's not contagious. Number two, it must spread rapidly. For 40 years, it was moving at the pace of 60 to 80 patients every year and stopping there. It never moved in rapidly. Number three, it must do something unusual or unexpected. For 40 years, listeria did not do anything unexpected or unusual. The fourth one, if there's any chance of it spilling across borders, then it must be notifiable. The fifth one, if there's a chance of travel and trade ban, then you notify it. Now, none of these five happened over the period of 40 years, but all of a sudden, from last year, two happened. Number one, an unusual thing, unexpected. Number two, rapid spread. So from December last year, we started making a notifiable deal. So it was not easy to pick up because it was not notifiable. So let's move to how we, we, we picked up the present source. Out of the people who suffered listeria and survived, we did what we call whole genome sequencing. Whole genome sequencing is a genetic fingerprinting to see whether organisms found in different places are related, you know, just like you do DNA. So we did that and found that of all the people who are infected, there are nine sequence types that are at play. But we found that 91% we're having only one strain out of this nine. And that was sequence type number six or ST. So we started searching for it all over. In all the food industry, we started searching for ST6. While we were searching, nine kids below the age of five from a crash in Soweto presented at Chris Honey Baroganath Hospital with problems of febrile gastroenteritis, vomiting, diarrhea, stomach pains. When they tested them, they found that they've got listeria and it's ST6. Our health inspectors then ran to the crash to find out what they've eaten. They found that they've eaten a sandwich. In it, there was polony and chicken sausage. Polony from a company called Enterprise and Chicken Sausage from Rainbow Chicken Limited in Tasselberg. So they then tested that food. Indeed, in the polony and in the chicken sausage, they found listeria and it was ST6. They then ran to these companies because they know where this polony is produced and where this sausage is produced. They took samples and they found listeria and indeed it was ST. Now, you spoke about the nine kids who have been affected. Talk to us about other groups who have been affected. Well, we know that there are about 948 people who have been affected. And the people who are mostly affected are pregnant women and neonates, those who in their first 28 days of life, obviously, they get it from their mothers because kids don't eat food. They don't eat this type of cold meat or any other food for that matter in the first 28 days of life. So it's from the mother. 
The third group are elderly people above the age of 65. The fourth group are people whose immunity has been compromised, either because they are HIV positive or because they've got diabetes mellitus or because they've got cancer or because they've got chronic kidney disease or chronic lung disease or because they are on chemotherapy or because they've just had a transplant and they're on immunosuppression therapy. All those people are the ones who are vulnerable. Do you think that the outbreak was underestimated to a certain extent? No, we didn't at all. Mm. From the beginning, we followed all the rules that gets followed when there's an outbreak. Firstly, we have set up a multi-sectoral response team, which we set up during the 2010 World Cup because we never disbanded it. We just brought it, and immediately in the multi-sectoral response team, we brought in the World Health Organization country representative to make sure that we are doing will have been done internationally. We even asked for three experts from the World Health Organization from Geneva. And is there reason to panic if one has consumed enterprise polony or rainbow chicken? Well, we'll ask people not to panic, except those, when you fall within those five groups, I think you can go to doctor. Ordinarily, South Africans mustn't panic because even if I say you have eaten it yesterday or the day before the recall, go to hospital, there's nothing they can do. Because Listeria is only tested in blood when you have got symptoms. And the incubation period is anything between two days and 70 days. That means the period between you ingesting the food and the symptoms showing. If you just go and say, I've eaten this type of food, do I have Listeria? There's no test that can pick it up. How real is the threat of cross-contamination? Because we've seen that polony is usually stored with other meats at retailers or even in our fridges. Yes. While we definitely picked up Listeria in the factory that produces polony, that's the enterprise, and the one that produces chicken sausage, and that is Rainbow. When we recall those, but for the others, because of fear of cross-contamination, we say people must just avoid them. Avoid any ready-to-eat product or any cold meat. That will be the safest way. So what measures will be taken against Tiger Brands and Rainbow Chicken? Where to from here? There are rules and regulations here. There are laws of the trade and industry that give them a license to trade. There are laws of the Department of Agriculture that controls some of the foodstuffs. There are laws in health. There are laws in the National Consumer Commission. There are laws of the National Consumer Committee. So all those will have to sit down and let's see how they get applied. There is South Africa's Health Minister, Dr. Aaron Mutualedi, talking to Elizabeth Ledecha. The symptoms of listeriosis may include fever, muscle aches, and occasionally nausea and diarrhea. Some individuals may also experience fatigue and a decrease or loss of appetite. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa. And our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
It is 1739 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Remember that at 1745 we have your economics and at 1750 we have your sports, your econ there with Wisani Matebula and your sports with Musibudi Makura. Now, Cape Town in South Africa is experiencing a severe drought. After three years of minimal rainfall, the city is now in a state of emergency with locals and visitors limited to 50 litres of water use a day. It has been no easy task for Cape Town's residents. But in the townships, many people have been living with very limited access to water for years. So what's their take on the crisis? The BBC spent the day with 17-year-old Elliot to Roto. I am Elie Tukhoto. I'm 17 and I'm from Kailicha, a township 30 kilometers from Cape Town city centre. For the past three years, there has been a low rainfall. As a result, we're experiencing a water crisis. But for me, it's not much of a crisis as it is a norm, as we always struggle to access water. I am now next to a communal tap Here people live in shacks, small houses made up of corrugated zinc. There are no toilets and people have to walk here to get water every day as they don't have any in their homes. I am with Nombutugo. She's a hairdresser and her saloon is just next to the communal tap. I don't think anything about this so-called water crisis because for us black people, it's always been like this. There are times where we just don't have water at all, where the taps just don't have water. Businesses in my community are already being affected by the water crisis. I am now at the laundromat in Ilita Park. My name is Nondumisa Machoba. I stay here in Ilita Park. This is my laundromat that I own. We in Kailicha were affected by it before the rich were affected. We were the first one to be affected because you'll find that, say about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, then we don't have water. Some of the washing that we have to do now, we outsource it, where they have like the big machine, when they do the dry cleaning, where they don't use so much water like we do. So the other thing that we do when we need water, we'll take our 25 liters, we go to our informal settlement to go fetch water, and then we bring it in here. What's your plan if the taps do run dry? Oh, that's a very difficult question. It's very sensitive because now, look, we have people that we've employed. Should day zero come, then probably the jobs will be affected. They will have to lose their jobs. People will go hungry. In my community, indeed, people are more and more worried if all taps run dry. The city of Cape Town has not even prepared citizens for day zero. I don't have information about how we will have water. I'm now at my home. The taps in my house have been dry every night since last year. I already adapted to the changes. I only shower once a day, less than two minutes. I used to shower for a long time, sometimes twice a day. Here in my kitchen, we have lots of buckets to store water. So today I have one of my closest friends, Kutle, and his sister, Lusanda. So um, can you give people of Cape Town, it tips on how to save water. Well, it's, it's sort of a rule at my house where you don't just flush. So you only flush when it, it is necessary to do so. Yeah, we also um, use grey water to wash the dishes. It's been like three weeks 
we haven't watched the family car. It's going to be a huge problem for us girls. So imagine we have to go through a menstruation cycle every month and I guess people won't even go to school because of the hygienic problems. For day zero to never happen, everybody needs to save water. My community has been under siege for many months now. I believe the government should encourage people to save water, but our leaders should also make a plan for equal access to water. All right, so that report was done by the BBC. You heard from 17-year-old South African Eleto Khotso. It is Khocho, rather, Eleto Khocho. It is 17.44 Central African time, right? I see many languages, though, so you have to get yourself in the zone of, of that particular language. It is now time for economics. Here's Usani Matebula. Good evening. Thanks, Espumelele. South African packaged goods company Tiger Brands is adamant that there's no evidence linking its products and the deaths of 180 people following the listeriosis outbreak. Health Minister Aaron Mutsualiri has announced that uh, Enterprise Foods and Rainbow Chicken's products, such as Poloni, Russians, chickens, sausages, and Viennese were the source of listeriosis. Briefing the media in Johannesburg, Tiger Brand CEO Lawrence McDowell said the company had increased its testing process. Our products have continually tested below the 10 CFUs and therefore not all products that have detection are harmful to consumers. So that is why we've acted as we have. Since the Department of Health, the DTI and the NCC have raised the awareness, we have taken the precautions to start detecting zero to watch for zero detection of listeriosis in our product. Therefore, the testing regimes have been upweighted significantly. There's been no direct correlation between our products and the deaths yet, so we are unaware of any direct link. And the Consumer Goods Council of South Africa says it's satisfied with the way stakeholders have responded to the latest information on the outbreak of the disease. Health Minister Aaron Mutsualeti has advised South Africans to stop consuming processed food products Matlo Sitati is with the Council for Food Safety Initiative. It's um, uh, commendable that the retailers are doing so much. They've removed everything from their shelves and they are willing to take any stock that is returned to them with or without the receipt. So with that said, it's important that we do not try and dispose of the particular products because if you dispose it in a, let's say, in a, in a dustbin, the chances of someone fiddling around with that dustbin are high. We know the situation in South Africa. And South Africa's Finance Minister Ntlantlanene says trust between government and society is crucial in building tax morality. He was briefing the federations of unions of South Africa in Camiel Drift, Johannesburg. Nene has expressed concern about the lack of tax compliance, which he says has affected government revenue. I spoke earlier about 200 billion rands, which is now at 180 billion rands allocated this year in order to service our debt. As long as we are still able to service the debt, and as long as we are also spending the money that we borrow in 
the productive capacity of the country in order to grow the economy. We need to be borrowing for investment. There is nothing wrong in doing that. But if the composition of your expenditure is such that you are borrowing for consumption, then you are on dangerous territory. So this is one of the things that is receiving attention, that whatever it is that our borrowing is, we do indeed need to reduce it to, to within sustainable levels. All the workers at the Gupta-owned Optimum coal mine in Middlebeck and Pumalanga have received their salaries. Their representative, Satulele Luzipo. We have extended a word of uh, invitation to them that uh, they must come and share, even if it's for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, on the uh, implications of uh, this situation in the event workers may end up not getting anything but also in terms of the relationship that they've built with the companies, in terms of uh, contractual obligations, whether it's in relation to social services, water, health care, or any other matters related to the social and labor plans. And the West African state of Ivory Coast is earmarking over $7 billion US dollars in infrastructure spending over the next five years, especially in transport. The announcement was made by the Minister for Economic Infrastructure, Amedi Kofukwaku, at ceremonies to launch a business fair to be held in the economic capital, Abidjan, in November. Chief areas of investment uh, include a bridge in Abidjan linking the district of Yobokon to the business center of Plechu and completing half of some 650 kilometers of highway that Ivory Coast has to build under a scheme linking Abidjan to the capital of Burkina Faso, Ouagadougou. Financial indicators say uh, the dollar trading at uh, 811.7 South African rands at 9.44 Botswana Pula and 9.71 Zambian Kwacha also at 72 pence to the British pound and 81 cents against the euro. Commodities uh, gold $1,336, uh, platinum $967 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil is at $64.67 per barrel. And that's your economics news. Thank you very much, Uzani. It's 1750 Central African time. Here's Mosibwede Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with cricket news, Australian captain Steve Smith says Quentin de Kock's personal sledging of David Warner was at the heart of the nasty incident that took place between the players during the first Test match. Australia bowled South Africa out for 298 to win the first Test match by 118 runs and take a 1-0 lead in the four-match series earlier this morning. The two left-handers were involved in a verbal altercation at tea time on day four in the steps leading up to the dressing rooms. According to the CCTV video footage, Warner, the Australian vice-captain, is clearly seen to be having a go at De Kock. Warner had to be restrained by Smith and Yusam Kawaja while his South African counterpart, Farm Duplessis, walked out when Warner was being moved into the dressing room.
Not to tennis news, two-time Wimbledon winner Andy Murray has lost his status as Britain's number one for the first time since 2006 after he was overtaken by Carl Edmund in the um, ATP rankings released uh, on Monday. Now Edmund has moved up to 24th position as he reaps the benefits of reaching the Australian Open semi-finals while former world number one Andy Murray, out injured um, during January and recovering from a hip operation, drops um, eight places to 29th position. Juan Martin Del Potro moves up one place to eighth position after he beat South African Kevin Anderson 6-4-6-4 to win the Mexican Open on Sunday. On to local athletics news, Botswana's Isaac Makwala, who won the 400 meter at the inaugural Liquid Telecom Athletics Grand Prix Series meeting in Johannesburg last Thursday, has his sights set on breaking the 31-second barrier at the second Liquid Telecom Athletics Grand Prix Series meeting at the University of Pretoria's Tuck Stadium in Pretoria this coming Thursday. The 300 meter is not an often run event, and as such, only three athletes have broken through the 31-second mark. Wade Fanigag, Michael Johnson, as well as Usain Bolt. Namakwala will only be the fourth athlete to go under 31 seconds should he accomplish that feat. He will line up amongst others Peter Conradi, Tapelo Porwa, as well as Offense Mokhoane, who is renowned for his aggressive first, um, rather front-running tactics. And finally, the 2018 Women's African Club Volleyball Championships have attracted a record participating teams in Cairo, Egypt. A historic um, record of 21 teams have been confirmed, breaking the old record of 18 teams, which happened twice back in 2008 as well as 2017. Channel Africa's Francis Motegi reports. Record holders and organizers of Ali of Egypt are one of the major participants having eight titles under their name besides the historic Kenya Pipeline team who have seven crowns. Other teams are defending champions Carthage of Tunisia, their compatriots Marsa, five-time champions Kenya Prisons, 2017 silver medalist Shams Club of Egypt as well as Alexandria Sporting Club of Egypt and the GSP of Congo, Asik Mimosa of Cote d'Ivoire, Vision VB and Kumba University, both from Uganda, BDF of Botswana, AS Dawanis of Burundi, Muzinga 2 from Burundi, Kenandengi VB Club of DR, Ingis, FAP, Bafia and Nyong at Kellen, all of Cameroon. The competition being hosted at All Ali Alls, kickoff on Tuesday, March 6th and conclude on 15th. And this is Sports News at the Sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-four Central African Time. Let's recap some stories. U.S. Secretary of State to begin his whirlwind African tour. South African authorities and retailers battle to contain the fallout following the tracing of the source of listeriosis. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Kumelele Zondi, producer Luanda Mahome, technical producer Wiseman Mangaile, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, on WhatsApp, plus 27. 
2776-300-3326. Tweet us on channel Africa One. We leave you with I Love You by Tammy Shobet. Mangiti, I love you. Gaguti, love you, Ami. Guewe, tempilwe, niami. Kegensu, tuze wako. Intisi, itwe, lutando. Kalamaka, mangiti, I love you. Kuboni subu sebako Boni kanyezi ilanga ninyanga Guzifani sanawe Egezi mtava na matafa Kuboni subu sebako Boni kanyezi ilanga ninyanga Guzifani sanawe Gaguting love you Baby, I would love you.